All right, Job 38. We are in the home stretch in Job, and we're going to have to slow down a little bit because these last speeches, which are the Lord's and then Job in dialogue, there's a lot here. And uh, two things are happening at the same time. And I think it's easy to observe and understand one of those two things. And then sometimes what people do is knowing that they just sort of flip the pages quickly on the end of Job and move on and don't really dig into what God is saying here. Here, Here's what I mean. The, The major point that God is making The whole of the argument, if you zoom out, is that he is God and Job is not. And that Job's arrogant posture toward God is the sin of self-righteousness from which Job needs to repent. And so in that sense, even though Job's friends were quite wrong about what Job needed to repent from, when you get to the end here, Job still thinks he needs answers, and the truth is, no, what Job needs is repentance. He needs to change his posture toward God. And so God says, where were you when? And he goes through all these things about how God is God and and Job is not. And that is absolutely true. That is the big thing that is happening. But sometimes, because that point, once once we get that that's what God's doing, And then we kind of thumb through the end of Job and we see that God is not going to answer Job's question. Why did this specific thing happen to me? This series of things. Job is not going to answer it. There's a temptation for us to just be kind of done with Job. Okay, I get it. God's not going to answer you. He doesn't owe you an answer. Job needs to repent because God's God and Job's not in the end. But there's more to this than that. What God specifically says as he's making that point that he is God and Job is not is itself important and has some things to teach us. And it it answers the questions we should be asking. And that's what's really going to be key about these speeches from God is God doesn't answer Job's questions, but it doesn't mean God doesn't answer any questions. It doesn't mean God just says, I'm God, you're not. Stop. He does answer questions. He answers critically important questions and reasoning backwards from what God answers. We should start to learn the questions we should be asking when we are in this darkness. And it's not the question Job was asking, why oh why me? That's a really important part for us to get out of these last speeches. And so we're going to slow down a little bit as we get through these last four chapters because I want us to hear not just the large summary argument that God is making, but also a lot of the individual points. Oh, that's where we're headed. What did Job want? Job has said many times that he wanted an audience with God and that he wanted to be presented 
with the specific charges that God had against him, or in the back of Job's mind, because he knows he's not guilty of those charges, he wants to be presented with uh, a, a declaration of innocence. That's what Job has said again and again in front of his accusers and then in, uh, somewhat in response uh, to, the, to his own summary statement a few chapters ago. Either present me with the specific charges or what will actually happen is a declaration of my innocence because I don't deserve this. What's the old expression, be careful what you wish for? <laughs> Be careful what you pray for. That doesn't mean don't pray for it. It just means be very thoughtful about what you're praying for and asking the question, what would it look like if God gave me what I'm asking for? That's all I'm saying. Because Job wants this audience with God. He wants this interaction with God over justice. And so God gives him what he asked for. God speaks. But God probably does not speak the way Job is expecting. Kate, can you read just verses 1 and 2, or how about 1 through 3? 38? Yes. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you, will make, and you make it known to me. Anytime God answers someone out of a whirlwind, that's probably not where you want to be. That is probably not the, for lack of a better word, emotional posture you want God to be in toward you, is out of the whirlwind. Well, how did God get this way toward Job? In uh, Ash's commentary, he has the great story, uh, you may have heard it somewhere else, but it's about the, the king of Spain, Alfonso, who has the famous quote when he said, had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. That's what Job has been saying. As silly as what Alfonso said seems to us, that's what Job has been saying. Job is learned and wise. Job is otherwise godly and obedient. And through his experience, he's come to the belief that he doesn't live in a well-run world. And that's really the tension of Job. It's the tension of all the wisdom literature. It's why Ecclesiastes is so similar from a different perspective not from physical darkness and suffering, but from mental turmoil over this is not a well-run world. Meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's what the Proverbs are offering you when they say, if you do this, you get that, except for those times when you don't. It's what the psalmists are saying when they say, how long, O Lord? All the wisdom literature speaks to this mental static <laughs> that the world we live in is not well run according to our standards. And so Job, in asserting his innocence, has crossed over into asserting God's guilt in not running the world as it ought to be run. 
and Elihu tried to warn him. But you don't see any repentance from Job post-Elihu. It's not like you see Job responding to Elihu by saying, you know what, you're exactly right. I have been thinking too highly of myself. And so when Job does not respond to the voice of the prophet with repentance, God can either write him off, be done with him, or God can deal with him. And God comes down to deal with him. And it is astonishing. It is, it's unbelievable that God would intervene this way in a human life. Do you really believe? Notice I didn't say think. <laughs> because you do think it. Do you believe that you actually have no useful advice to offer God about the running of his universe? That's a tough thing to believe. It's a tough thing for us to admit. I could not tell God how to do it better. Not just, and, and, and you've got to, uh, I don't even know how to write this up here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to make a distinction here. The, you can substitute different words if there are words that make this point clearer for you. It's not enough to be resigned to the fact that God is God and you are not. That, granted, that's a big step. Most of the world rejects that notion. So I'm not saying that that's unimportant. I'm saying that's not enough. It's not going to get you there. It's not going to get you to count it all joy. It's not going to get you to content in times of plenty and content in times of want. It's not going to get you to the abundant life Jesus describes in John. Here and now, not just future glory. He's talking about here and now. Resigned to the fact that God is God and he is not, won't get you there. If what you're holding in the back of your mind is, yeah, but I could do it better if he'd listen to me. Embrace... I, I can't think of a good word there, so I'm open to ideas. But embrace is his way is best. It's not just that he's most powerful. It's that he's also most good and most wise. It takes a lot to resign ourselves to God's will be done. It's that extra leap of faith to say, and I'm glad God's will be done because it is better. I don't have useful advice to offer God about the running of his universe. Regardless of the words, do you get that distinction? This is where we've got to get with Job. Job said he was there at the very beginning of this book. What did Job say at the beginning? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job said, and probably really thought, that that's what he believed. And then all this stuff has happened. And it's not caused Job to stop believing in God. But it has very much tempted Job to do what Satan accused him of. Which is to embrace God's will when it is consistent with how Job thinks the universe ought to be run. And to distance himself from that embrace still resigned to it, 
Job never loses the resignation that God is God. But he loses the embrace of God is good and wise and perfect and whatever I think is not a well-run world is a problem with me or with a sinful fallen world and not with God. That's where we got to get. So God speaks, answered Job out of the whirlwind. God's going to answer Job. What God says is not the answer to the specific question that Job thinks is most important. But we're being told plainly, it is the answer to Job. It is God's answer to Job, which means it is the right and the needed answer. And then he answers him out of the whirlwind. Um, This is common biblical language. And I will say, everybody should be surprised that this happens. Because when Job made his argument that he wanted an audience with God, do you remember how various people responded in the book? I mean, the first set of friends laughed at him. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like, you're going to get an audience with God. Even Elihu, God's prophet, says to Job, ah, you can't find him. (laughs) Not going to happen. And so everyone should be astonished that God presents himself, speaks this way to Job. It's a very unusual thing in Scripture. Um, And for Job to be as early as it is in history, it's especially uh, foreign, unknown, unusual to them. So let's talk some of the unique things about this speech. Is, is the door shut or open? I'm pro-exuberant. I'm also pro-door. Uh, let me read from uh, Derek Thomas for a minute. Remember Satan's original taunt in chapter 1. Does Job fear God for nothing? For a reason that remains a mystery, Satan had been given leave to test Job's faith. Throughout the book, he never appears, though Satan has been there fulfilling his role as the accuser of God's people. Job has felt Satan's ability to tear apart his own life, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, spiritual turmoil, oppression, and confusion. Job has been aware of, unaware of Satan's presence and turned his anger instead upon God. Job has things to learn about God, and the experience of pain has enforced it. One of the really challenging things for us to wrestle with here in the back side of Job is God's purposeful use of evil. Kathy alluded to this last week in one of her comments. Um, There's no way to explain the existence of evil in the universe except that God purposed it to be so. It doesn't make him dirtied by it, that he is an engager in or a practitioner of evil or a lover of evil. None of that is true. But there would not be evil in the universe, in the creation, except that he purposed it to be. 
And there's lots of ways that sound clever that people try to get around that. They don't work. Oh, no, evil's just the absence of good. And so if there's good, go take philosophy 101. Like, it, just, it doesn't work that way. At some point, you have to get comfortable saying what God says, which is that he brings calamity. He said that just a few chapters ago. And he's going to say in this speech that he brings these storms. Here, he's speaking out of a whirlwind. Um, it's going to make us really uncomfortable. We can't go further than Scripture goes, and we have to affirm everything that Scripture affirms, which is, again, God is not... His, his moral desire is not for this evil. But we also can't make up some uh, get-out-of-jail-free card where we say, well, God... You know, really, 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 with every fiber of his being, doesn't want it this way and didn't want evil to exist. He's just either, and then how are you going to finish that sentence? Allowing it is what they say. I mean, I don't even know what that, like, okay. If I allow my child to walk into the middle of the road, does that free me from saying? I didn't want my child to walk in the middle. Because you could have stopped I could have stopped them. Uh, And especially in God's world, Again, there is no maverick molecule. There's nothing present that isn't part of his blueprints. We can get into really, and we probably will over the next couple weeks, really difficult, complicated arguments over how can both of those be true, that he's not tainted by it, that he's not responsible for it, and yet it would not exist apart from uh, his permissive decree. Um, but for now, we, we've just got to be prepared to recognize that this is going to be one of the really tough things that we're dealing with. Four things mark this speech as significant. The first is that it's unmediated. This is going to be like God speaking at Sinai. What was it like when God spoke at Sinai? What were the weather conditions? Baldy. <laughs> Storms. Clouds, thunder, shaking, felt like earthquakes, big deal. God in his unmediated presence is terrifying. Terrifying. Scripture is pretty consistent that when God unmediated speaks to people, that's why the whole burning bush thing with Moses it's like, well, maybe if I just have part of my glory radiate as fire from this bush, and maybe if you don't look directly at it, and maybe if you take off your shoes and are careful, you won't get burnt to a crisp. That's the level of mediation that has to exist between people and God. Otherwise, we get burnt up. And so God speaks out of the whirlwind, but this is unmediated. So we do have to pay very careful attention to what God is going to say here. This is a, a type of speech that is extremely uncommon in Scripture for God to just speak directly to an individual. The second is, look at the very beginning of verse 1, 38. Who answered Job out of the whirlwind? Anything special about that Lord in your Bible? All caps. It's Yahweh. It's the first time we've seen the name Yahweh since chapter 1 and 2. The Lord, the covenant 
God is the one who's speaking. But remember, uh, where's is 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 Job from Judah? No, Job's from us. The covenant God is already way this early time in history speaking to someone before and outside of Israel. His covenant has always been for those who are far off, drawing them near. People who think that Israel is plan A and the church is plan B haven't read Job. God's plan was always his people, and Israel fits right in the middle as this little picture object lesson, not unimportant, very important, but this object lesson of the covenant that was both before and after them and inside and beyond them. And we see that here. Um, This is the whole story of the Bible is, is about the fulfillment of this covenant in Christ. The third remarkable feature of this one is God speaking directly to one man. It's just not something you see very often. He's speaking personally. God speaking general promises to humankind, okay. God speaking covenant promises to his people, okay. God speaking individually to one man, our ears should perk up. This is rarefied air right here. And then finally, as I said, God speaks out of the whirlwind, which is very fitting because what analogy has Elihu been using in his speeches to talk about proof of God's governance of the universe? Storms, these weather patterns. And so this gigantic storm that Elihu is using as a metaphor for God's sovereign power over the universe, that's the storm of Job's life. And it's the storm out of which God comes and speaks. Is there any connection uh, with how his children were destroyed in the beginning with wind and whirlwind, or is that too much of a stretch? I, I think it's too much of a stretch, except to say that it's the right category, which is that God, God's present in the storms. His, his hand is at work in the storms. And if you don't think God could be at work in the storm that killed his children... Here's his very voice coming out of this storm. Does that show you that he's in the storms? So I think you could draw that, but I don't think there's a closer literary parallel. I could be wrong. Whatever else may be true. That's why, oh man. So he calls himself Lord, Yahweh. It's going to be critical in the Isaiah passage today as well. There's so much overlap between this and the Isaiah passage today, which is the third of Isaiah's servant songs. Whatever else may be true, God wants us who read this book to be aware that he has not abandoned Job. Think about it. God's been silent for, what, 30, 36 chapters now? And, and we are, to Pam's point last week, it's easy for us to sort of get on team Job and team anti-God. If like, yeah, why, why doesn't God give him an answer? Why is God making all this bad stuff happen? Where is God? God has abandoned him. And then what's the very first word about God that you read in chapter 38? Yahweh. Covenant God will not abandon his people. Cannot 
abandon his people. That is the name of covenant faithfulness. That is the name of who shall I tell them sent me? I am. Whenever you doubt the things you've been promised, I want you to remember who said them. I am. It's the name that, wa- that passed through the animal carcasses and said that if I ever fail to keep a word of my promise, what happened to these animals is what will happen to me. I am. The very first word that we read when we are in utter darkness and cannot believe that the darkness will ever lift, the first word we're supposed to remember is Yahweh. I am. And so I am answers Job out of the whirlwind. God is bound by his covenant. But then, so that, I mean, that's all good, right? That's touchy-feely. That starts to make you feel, all right, this is all going to work out. And then what's the first thing that he says to Job out of the whirlwind? Brace for action. Brace yourself like a man. This is from ancient uh, wrestling uh, language. And it's this idea that you're supposed to physically prepare yourself, your clothing and your body, prepare yourself to enter into hand-to-hand combat with God. Well, this just took a turn. The whole Yahweh thing was really encouraging. And now God says, I am the one who's going to put you on this wrestling mat with me, and we're going to go a few rounds. And that's where we're headed. Derek Thomas, I think, does a really good job here with paraphrased language. Job has been asking for this all along. Just put yourself mentally in Job's headspace for a second and and go through this. This is what Job has been asking for all along. His mind has been seething with anger at what he considers to be his unfair treatment. He's not living in a well-run world. He is dismissive of God's right to treat him this way. He wants explanations. If only he could get a hold of God, he would. And now Job's wish has come to pass. Be careful what you wish for, because sometimes you may get it. Can't can't you feel that? Like that, that rising tension of God owes me an explanation and God's ignoring me and I've been crying out for all these chapters and God won't give me an answer and things keep getting worse and there's more darkness and none of this is right. This is not the way the world should be run. And if I could just get God, I would just shake him. Okay. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Which, I mean, Come on, if you don't think God has a sense of humor. (laughs) It's such a great way to say that. Job, you have so many answers. You have so, I mean, we occasionally, when we're not parenting at our best, we'll say something similar to our children. I just wish I knew as much as you knew. Why don't you just tell me how this ought to go? When I'm doing that, it's a sinful-hearted parent. God's actually right. <laughs> it, it, uh, nothing has escaped his notice. Nothing is accidental. Nothing is because he was too lazy or tired or weak. Everything that he's permitted, he did not do with his own hands. He permitted Satan to do this. But he purposefully permitted it. I think that's the challenge with the, the language you mentioned a minute ago that, that when people use 
God just allows it. He purposefully allowed it. If they would just add purposefully, I'd be okay with that. Because I see what they're, they're, they're trying to do what we have to do. What scripture says is protect God because he's not the one, not that he needs our protection, but in our language, protect God. He's not the one actually killing Job's children. Satan did that. That's very, very clear. But he allowed Satan to do it. In what way did he allow it? Laziness? Indifference? Inattention? No. Purposefully. He purposefully allowed this. And the fact that he is the one with the purpose is going to end up being the whole ballgame. That's the part where we have to embrace that he's the one with the purpose. And that he's trustworthy enough that no matter what comes to pass, we not just resign to it, we can actually embrace it because he's the one with the purpose. That's the part Job has missed. So Job has challenged God several times in this book to a battle of wits, to a uh, princess bride style, sit across the table, whose cup has the poison and what will you drink? It's a battle of wisdom. And God says, uh, you know, Job, there's been a lot of talk and not a lot of wisdom. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's also a phrase we use in our house a lot. Words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. So this is going to be a test. And the test... It's, it's, it's going to be a series of questions. And if you want to organize God's speech quarter, uh, kind of in big buckets, there's going to be questions first about the earth. That's Job 38, 4 to 21. And then there's going to be questions about the heavens. And then there's going to be questions about the animal kingdom. And, and all God is going to do is ask Job some questions. Job, you've said you have a lot of knowledge. You've said you know how to make this a well-run world. Let me ask you a few questions about the world that you're ready to tell me how to run. Let's talk about the earth. Let's talk about the heavens. Let's talk about the animals. And then we'll see what you have to say at the end of that. And spoiler alert, you remember what Job's going to say at the end of that, right? Nothing. He's going to say, I should not have asked. I should not have played this game. I should not have come into the wrestling rink. i just going to fall down here and repent and hope that that is enough. Because I'm not going to be able to answer. And that's where we're headed. Um, questions about that, and then we'll get into... I want to talk about mystery for a minute, because Derek Thomas does a good job on that. Uh, the question here is... Uh, questions about the structure of this and kind of what God's doing and where we're headed. God's going to speak twice. Both of his speeches will start with a challenge. And this first one is, you know, yeah, Job, Job is insistent that he's innocent of the charges of his friends have brought against him, but that's not the charge God is bringing against him. It's not the charge God is dealing with. The charge God is dealing with is that he's spoken. He's lacked wisdom. <laughs> he, he, he has lacked Humble recognition of the godness of God. And so God agrees with Elihu's verdict, 
which is that Job's gotten too big for himself. There's self-righteousness that's come out of his heart, and that's what God is going to deal with. Job has spoken as though, and boy, I mean, this hits close to home because we do this all the time. Job has spoken as though he knows how things ought to be. He's spoken as though he knows what's best. He's spoken as though if he were running the world, the world would be better. And that is, by definition, an accusation against the one who is actually running the world. You can even be submitted in heart. Yeah, I can't do anything about it because he's got and I'm not. And still have the problem Job is having. Because that's the position Job is in. Job gets that he can't do anything about it. That's why he wants this audience with God. And I'll tell God and then God will be forced to do something about it. And where Job's supposed to be by faith is embracing that no, actually, even in the darkness where I cannot see a foot in front of my face, I have no idea what's happening or why, the Lord is still faithful to his covenant. Not abstractly, in the darkness. The darkness is covenant faithfulness somehow. And no, we're not going to get to the point where God answers, how is this darkness covenant faithfulness? Not for Job. We know. We knew it back in chapter 1. It's covenant faithfulness because it's the powers of the heavens accusing God of not being worthy of love. So we know Job's not going to get that answer. God's never going to tell Job about Satan. Because is he telling you? Have I missed the part where he's telling you why the darkness represents his covenant faithfulness? Most of the time, you're not going to get that at all. But embracing that it is, is more Christ-like than the alternative. And he's making us more like Christ. And so that's what he's going to work on with Job and hopefully work on with us. Derek Thomas has a really good section in his commentary here on the mystery of God. That mystery is this vital element of all our theologizing. Paul says to Timothy that God dwells in unapproachable light. God is greater than we can ever fathom. And we're holding two things to be true. One is we can know things about God. And the things we know about God, we know fully and perfectly because he revealed them. Everything God revealed about himself is knowable and perfect. And so there's a lot we do know about God because he's revealed it. That's critical. This idea that God is just, you know, this complete mystery that's impenetrable to us. Well, that would be true, except that God has penetrated that barrier and revealed himself to us in Lots and lots of meaningful ways. But all that we do know of him, we still only know a little. (laughs) Because he is unapproachable, light, unfathomable in his holiness. It's the solitariness of God. When we say there is none like you, that's not just a praise of, oh God, you're the best. It's an an objective, factual statement. There's, There's nobody else in this category. There are things about this category we can't even comprehend, except that you're in it. That's what we're saying. And so that 
that mystery is somewhere a part of this embrace. In the Institutes, Calvin describes this, John Calvin's biggest life, his Institutes of the Christian Religion, surprisingly pastoral. If you ever make the time to read through Calvin's Institutes, I think your view of Calvin would change if you haven't read them before. I'm not saying they're easy, but I'm saying they're pastoral. They're concerned with your heart, not just with writing a theological encyclopedia. Calvin describes God's essence as incomprehensible. His divineness escapes all human perception. He said in his 1542 catechism, our understanding is not capable of comprehending God's essence. And so Calvin said the best help to offer those in trouble is that they patiently yield themselves to the purposes of a sovereign God. It is a willingness, an embrace, not just a resignation. It's a willingness, an embrace to submit to God's ways despite our lack of understanding. You can get good with the mystery as a theological category and just resign, resign yourself to the fact that he's God and you're not. That's not what God's asking for from Job here. It's the embrace of God himself as good, as faithful, as better at running the universe than you. So that even in the darkness, you cannot see a foot in front of you. You still trust God. And even when you can see the foot in front of you, and it is horrific, like, I don't know, being beaten with a cat of nine tails and then spit upon and having a crown of thorns placed upon your head, you are able to say, not my will, but thy will. That, that's being like Jesus in a meaningful sense. I really struggle with people who say, you know, you need to live the gospel because I've got great news for you. Uh, you can't and you don't have to. Like, you're not going to die. I hope you don't die for your sins because if you do, then you perish in your guilt. So you don't have to die for anybody's sins, not even your own. So there's no... There's no part of you <laughs> that is the good news. <laughs> but having been saved, having the work done for us, there is this Christ-likeness that is made in us and that becomes increasingly real over a Christian life. That's sanctification. We mortify sin, putting it to death, and we pursue holiness, acting out righteousness, so that our lives, when we die, look a lot more like Jesus than our lives looked before. This is one of the huge categories for holiness in our lives. It's not easy to be a law keeper, but, but we kind of get, okay, by God's grace, by his strength, I can more and more keep the law. We see that element of growing in Christ-likeness. It's, it's the same kind of thing in a different category. To trust God in the darkness. 
Job could trust God in seasons of plenty. And some people might think that's easy. It's not easy. And if anybody thinks it's easy, they haven't read Ecclesiastes. They haven't ta- read the parable, the uh, story of the rich young ruler. Like, it's, it's not easy. But we have the category for learning to trust God in seasons of plenty. What does faithfulness look like when God blesses you and you have abundance? We need to grow more like Christ to make that happen. And then the same thing is true in this category of seasons of want. We don't have. How do I trust God when I don't have? We have a category for that. We know it takes God's grace. It takes growth by that grace for us to walk with God faithfully in seasons of want. Take those Take those tracks of godliness, all by God's grace, all headed toward Christ-likeness, and now add another track. What is it like to be more like Jesus, to trust God in utter darkness? That's what Job's about. It's this category of holiness. Not higher or lower, but alongside keeping the law. Alongside obedience in seasons of plenty. It's this trap of holiness that's, you know, it's, it's not a freshman level class. <laughs> it's, it's graduate studies in holiness. <laughs> but who did Satan go to to accuse in the book of Job? Did he go to a junior flunky from divinity school? He went to Job, who was righteous. How do we know? God said so. Went to Job, who's making sacrifices for his children at their birthday parties. (laughs) It's pretty intense. Job was really far along in his sanctification on several of these tracks. But he was deficient on this track. And so God, as he's doing all of these other things, is also bringing Job to a place where in the mystery of life, the inexplicable darkness. You have been through really deep suffering over the last few years. You know that what's worse than the thing that happened is the asking why the thing that happened happened. It's the darkness. The thing is really, really bad. I'm not diminishing the things, but the darkness, how can this be good? That's harder. That's next level hard. And that's, that's the graduate level sanctification course Job is in. And the reason for that is because you can embrace God's will, you can embrace purposeful allowing, you can embrace that piece of it. But to embrace it in the midst of evil and the ripple effect of evil and having to tolerate the evil and the ripple effects of that evil. But yet that's exactly what Christ did on the cross because he saw the purposeful usefulness of it. He allowed the evil. He went through the evil. He tolerated the evil. For what was set before him. He embraced And I know we say, yeah, but that's Jesus. 
Exactly. Exactly. Which is what makes it so hard. And that's why you can't do it today. That's why you'll never do it in your own strength. But if God's primary, by a million miles, goal for your life is to make you like Jesus, you're going to take that graduate course too. You can get to heaven without ever taking that graduate course. But it should not surprise you that if you've been in the faith for a while, you got this learning to do. And he wasn't embracing the evil part of it. it like, so it, it is fragmented. Like it is, it is, it isn't an integrated piece. Like it's, you have this piece that you're nauseated by and viscerally sick over and then you have this piece where you're saying but God is it despising the shame well, yeah okay there's that but that's, that's obviously that's not embracing the shame yeah yeah no no but um, it, you know it's despising it, but it's for the joy that was set before him right. isn't that right not right. Hebrews yeah. 12 right. Somebody, three. 12, 2, two and three. Two, 3. Somebody go there. Let's look at this closely. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And endured and despising is not embracing. So there's this split, this split thing going on, which is what makes it complicated or difficult. It's what matters more. What do you want most? And, and when we're honest, I think I said this in a sermon a few weeks ago. When we're honest, what we want most is, is less trouble. Not no trouble, because none of us is willing to say that. Oh, I just want this life of ease. No, no, we're, we're, we're okay with some trouble. But what we want is less trouble. Not this much. <laughs> Not that much. What do you want most? If Jesus says, what matters most to me is not having the shame. He despised the shame. If if Jesus said, what matters to me most is that I not go on this cross. But he endured the cross. Why? Why did he do the things that weren't what he wanted most? He wanted nothing to do with the cross. He wanted nothing to do with the shame. He deserved neither one of them. But there was something he wanted more for the joy that was set before him. He could see past those to the salvation of his people. And you really could say in Jesus' case, it was the obedience to the Father. The, The plan of the Father was to save the people. So for Jesus to be obedient to the Father... This is what he had to do. And what Jesus wanted most was obedience to the Father. And that joy of 
of obeying his father perfectly. For that he endured and despised. And so then what we're doing in being Christ-likeness, the author of Hebrews starts with, is that we, same pattern, for the joy, being like Jesus with Jesus, abundant life, has to be so much more important to us that we endure, despise, go through the other stuff that's an element that is required to get that joy. And for us, we have an additional, additional thing we have to do that he did not have to do, which is we have to lay aside every weight and sin. But it's the same path. Job has done a pretty good job with this. The laying aside, the weights and the sins. Job is on the righteousness road. And he thought that the joy set before him was the most important thing in his life. But then came the shame and then came the suffering. And now Job's disoriented. And it turns out that the joy with the Lord is not what Job wanted the most. What he wants the most is the world to be run the way Job wants the world to be run. And so he says, if I could just get a hold of God, I could talk some sense into him, and he would be forced to give me an answer. And then out of the whirlwind, the Lord speaks and says, there's a lot of words, not a lot of knowledge. Dress for action, Job. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Job's got to get... If Job wants to be more like Christ, this is not a battle. Whether or not this is a battle for Job's soul is missing the point. This is a battle for Job's sanctification. It's a battle for God's honor. And within Job, it's a battle for Job's sanctification. His friends kept making this a battle for his salvation. This is a battle for Job's sanctification, being more like Jesus. And if he's going to be more like Jesus, he's going to have to reprioritize in his life. It's, and that's, that's the resigned part. Job can be resigned and still not think it's worth it. He just thinks he doesn't have a choice. Embracing is the recognition that it's worth it. That what God is doing is worth it. And trusting God in that darkness, which will remain a mystery, you will not likely know. That is Christ-likeness. Greater Christ-likeness. Questions about that? That's why I said we got to slow down. There's, this is, God's doing a lot here besides just putting Job in his place. Uh, this is going to sound mean. I don't mean it to be mean. But you ask the question the way we would all ask it. But you ask the question as one who's looking at the path. 
What if the path gets bumpy? What if the path, what if the, you ask the question as one who's looking at the path. And the whole point of this is to look at Christ. And when you are, I know this is very difficult for us to imagine, and I'm, I'm going to say it like it's easy because it's easy to say, but it's not easy to do. But it is actually the case that when your gaze is firmly fixed on Christ, it does not matter what the path is. And so you have a healthy reverence for the tornado God who will do what he will do. But it doesn't make you uneasy. It doesn't make you afraid. Because Christ, when I'm in it, whatever it is, good or bad, it is far less important. Because Christ, I am fixed on the joy that is set before me. Life with Christ. Abundant life with Christ. And so I don't fear that there's going to be shame that I'll have to despise. I don't fear that there's going to have to be pain I'm going to have to endure. Christ. I think that's what James means with count it all joy. Even with a Barclay marathon? <laughs> They're in some deep, deep pain. Deep pain. So that's different than stoicism. Stoicism is it doesn't matter. Christianity is, it doesn't upend me. It does matter because it's for my holiness. And therefore, it's actually good. Stoicism is, I am unaffected by it. Christianity is, it makes me more like Jesus. I am utterly affected by it. Stoicism is, my pain makes me harden myself. Christianity is, my pain drives me into the arms of Christ. More closely, more Jesus.